Um, so if you can if you combine Jonathan's priority monism with panpsychism, you get cosmopsychism. So I'm not, you know, I'm not exactly necessarily totally tied to that position, but it is the one I've been more consistently attracted to because of Jonathan in the first instance. Jonathan, why, why are you not a panpsychist? I guess uh, you, you see Philip here has grabbed your uh, priority monism and ran with it. Yeah. Why, uh, why don't you go the full way and follow him? Oh, um, Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is awesome. It's so cool. I'm so like jazzed for it. I have with me two returning guests and philosophical like legends today. Uh, I have with me Dr. Jonathan Schaffer and Dr. Philip Goff. Both have been on to talk about their particular theories of mind, or even if they're not their particular theories of mind, theories of mind that they've put forward. Uh, Dr. Goff has been on to talk about panpsychism, cosmopsychism, universal consciousness, uh, you know, top-down psychism, ground-up psychism, panpsychism. Uh, panpsychism is just the view that like everything has mentality or consciousness. It's awesome. So he came. He's coming on to talk with Dr. Jonathan Schaffer. He came on to talk about. A paper he wrote on ground functionalism. Uh, functionalism is a theory of mind that says uh, what it means to be conscious is to be like a, a a realized set of inputs, outputs, and internal states. Uh, I don't know if that sounds complicated. It shouldn't sound too complicated. Uh, but Dr. Schaeffer's got a really fascinating view. He's a metaphysician, like a, a really, really good metaphysician. And so he goes in for like grounding principles. And there's this metaphysical mind-making principle that when an input and an output and an internal state happen, like this is a metaphysical law that a mind will will dance out. He's got some really nice language, actually. So uh, I had them both on to talk about the mind. What is it? What does it mean to be conscious? What does it mean to be a mind? What does it mean to be in pain? And we compare and contrast different theories of, of the philosophy of mind. It's really, really fun, really high level, fun stuff. It's like a huge privilege to have to even just talk with these guys. Uh, the, the fact that they would like email me back is pretty cool. But the fact that they would come onto the podcast and talk with me, trying to help me understand their views, it's it's unreal. So this podcast is nothing but just a joy for me to do. With that said, uh, I do have to keep the lights on. I do have to feed my dogs, and I do have to like justify this to my friends and family and my wife. Like, so if you guys like the podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon or on YouTube members. There are perks uh, at both of them. They're like really similar perks. So uh, if I, this is like your top five and you want to see me stick around, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. If you like these conversations, if you learn something, that would be huge. So uh, you can find the links in the description wherever you're getting this podcast episode at. Uh, I could commodify myself a little bit more, but I won't. I should just say, hey, we have a Facebook group called Parker's Pensies Ponciers. I'll pronounce the second French word, but not the first one correctly. Uh, Ponciers. Find that on Facebook and I will let you in and you can talk with people like, like these two, uh, in the Facebook group. It's really cool. I'm trying to build a little community there of, of ponciers, of thinkers, of Parker's thought thinkers, <laughs> Pensies ponciers. So, uh, do find us on Facebook. I wonder if I have that link in the description. I should, if not, good luck, but go find it. All right. Without further ado, let's jump in with Dr. Philip Goff and Dr. Jonathan Schaffer. 
All right. Well, I have with me Dr. Philip Goff and Dr. Jonathan Chaffer, two legends. This is really, really exciting. Both of them have been on the podcast before, um, so go watch those links in the description. Dr. Chaffer, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Dr. Philip Goff, thanks for, so much for coming back, both of you guys. Thanks so much, Parker. I had a great time with you last time. I'm just really happy to be back and here with Philip as well. So awesome. Absolutely. It's a great podcast, Parker. You're doing some really good stuff, so I'm happy to be invited on again. Oh, and it's lovely that. to see Jonathan again. I haven't seen you. For, we're old friends. I haven't seen you for a long, long time. I like the beard. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You're looking looking good. I like the glasses. Oh, yeah. I was just explaining before we went broadcast uh, that I've just been at this AI thing in Sweden and I left my glasses on the plane. And so the only spare pair I could find has this sellotape in the middle. But um, <laughs> so, yeah. Looks it's good. not a fashion statement. Well, hopefully by the end of this uh, conversation, we'll be able to know whether that tape is conscious or not, and if it's grounded in fundamental reality or what. So we'll see. Um, yeah, I don't want to get too cheeky with the jokes here because there's a lot of them that we can make. But <clears throat> uh, so the reason that you're I allowed to... one, you're allowed one. <laughs> right, you had one, you're one panpsychism joke. That's good. I appreciate that. So we, the reason I wanted to have this podcast uh, with you two is because I see a lot of similarities and I see some differences that I want to, I just want to get both of your guys' uh, ideas on it. We've talked about it individually and now we're all here together, but I want to talk mostly about like mind and fundamentality. How fundamental is the mind? And then, you know, what, what is the mind and uh, can you have consciousness without minds? So these kind of like really fun questions, I think are really exciting and you two have both done really good work on it. So um, as we get going here, for maybe some of those who haven't uh, heard the episodes before this, maybe we could start with Dr. Schaffer. Can you, um, I don't know, this is really hard to do, but can you give us maybe like a snapshot view of, of ground functionalism, what the mind is on that theory? Yeah, sure, Parker. So the idea behind ground functionalism. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew. Ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease is that the mind is a kind of derivative outcome of having a system that's organized by the right functional principles that mediates the right transitions from cause to effect, uh, which a physical system could do. So the idea here is that we think of the mental state not as 
defined in terms of uh, causal profile as on old sort of Lewis style analytic functionalism. And yeah. we think of the mental state not as merely nomologically correlated with uh, a, a functional or physical state as on a kind of Dave Chalmers style naturalistic dualism. But we think there's a kind of kind of an intermediate grade connection that's neither an analytic connection true in virtue of meaning, nor a nomological connection that holds through these contingent laws of nature, but a metaphysical grade connection that holds in virtue of these constitutive uh, uh, principles of metaphysical making, mind making mm. principles in this case. So that's the, the core idea of ground functionalism is that when a system uh, inhabits the right uh, functional roles, that makes it have the right mental states. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super helpful. That was great. I, I was able to, I think I was able to understand this by thinking of modalities where there's like logical modalities, which I would see as like maybe the semantic folks, the analytic functionalists. And then there's like physical modalities, which I would see as like the Chalmers style and there's metaphysical modalities. And maybe, maybe you don't even think there are those, but that's how I've been like getting my grip on it. What, what do you, do you see the connection there? Absolutely. And I a hundred percent agree. Um, so I do think there are these sort of sort of three spheres in logical space for logical or conceptual or maybe analytic necessity, nomological and metaphysical. Although I'll just at, at the risk of undoing maybe a useful way of getting a, a grip on these notions. If you ask me to try to understand nomological necessity, I'll say it's necessity holding fixed the laws of nature. And if you ask me to understand metaphysical necessity, I'll say something parallel. It's necessity holding fixed the principles of grounding. So um, the way that I'm trying to understand nomological and metaphysical necessity just brings us back to the notions of laws of nature and grounding principles. So I, I don't think of it as giving great independent purchase on the notion, but you know, it's a useful sort of interconnection yeah. between the notions so in that sense, it can be a helpful way to sort of glom onto the idea. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to glom on. That's a great description for what I do in the podcast. That's so good. Um, Dr. Goff, can you help us out with, with I don't know, maybe you, um, I, I was thinking cosmopsychism, but I, I never know where you're at nowadays with, uh, with the panpsychism, which one you're, you're toying with. So, yeah. Um, well, I'm open to a variety of options. You know, I think it's too early to sort of say this is definitely mm. the correct view. Yeah. But I think I've consistently actually been um, more sympathetic to cosmopsychist okay. versions of panpsychism. And, and I think this all begins with Jonathan, actually. I, uh, I don't know whether he knows this. So I, I first met Jonathan when I was... Uh, a postdoc at the Australian National University. People don't know what postdocs are. It's after you've finished your PhD, maybe before you get an assistant professor position. If you're lucky, you can get a post where you have a couple of years to sort of write some stuff without having to teach. And uh, Jonathan had just started as a professor at Australian National University. And he taught me about this this monism stuff in a bar somewhere. Mm -hmm. The Wigan Pen, maybe? Was it the Wigan Pen? Yeah, I don't know. That I can't right. That's where we used to... That's where we used to go a lot. I can't remember quite. Yeah. Um, and I was actually at this stage going through my um, panpsychism skeptical phase. I, I have this paper that was eventually published in 2009 uh, called Why Panpsychism Doesn't Help Explain Consciousness. <laughs> um, 
10 years later, I've just published another paper called How Panpsychism Help Explains Consciousness. <laughs> anyway, but uh, so I've sort of spent my whole career trying to solve my own problems. But yeah, I had these worries about whether there's an explanatory gap with panpsychism just as bad as with physicalism. Um, that, you know, there's explanatory gap with physicalism, how you get from physical facts to consciousness facts, but with panpsychism, is this explanatory gap how you get from particle consciousness to brain consciousness? And at this point, I worried it was just as serious. But uh, when Jonathan introduced me to this uh, priority monist view, which is kind of like, he can say better than me, but the, uh, the, the universe is the one fundamental thing and everything that exists is derivative from facts about the universe. And it struck me this was this was perhaps a way to, perhaps we could get onto at some point, but uh, a way to solve some of these um, explanatory gap worries with with a more micro-based panpsychism, you know, where it's everything's reducible to particles. So I've always thought, since speaking to Jonathan in that bar <laughs> 15 years ago or something, uh, that um, that universe first forms of panpsychism s do a lot better than uh, particle-based forms of panpsychism. In fact, my uh, academic book, my first book, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, ended up defending a sort of universe universe first form of cosmopsychism. <coughs> uh, so form of panpsychism. Um, so if you can if you combine. Jonathan's priority monism with panpsychism, you get cosmopsychism. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily totally tied to that position, but it is the one I've been more consistently attracted to because of Jonathan in the first instance. Yeah, that's so, awesome. There you go. Yeah. Well, so that's that's what's so fascinating here, um, Dr. Schaefer. I'm going to call you both by your first names. I'm sorry for yep. for everyone listening. I keep mixing How up. How dare things. you? Yeah, I know, right? I'm putting myself... I don't you need a PhD me now. Dr. Goff. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah uh, Jonathan, why why are you not a panpsychist, I guess? Uh, you, you see Philip here has grabbed your uh, priority monism and ran with it. Yeah, why uh, why don't you go the full way and follow him? Oh, um, uh, not for any dispute over the monism side of things there. I think mm -hmm. we're in, as far as I know, we're in... Uh, agreement about the, the whole cosmos being uh, more fundamental than any of its proper parts. Um, but real, rather, um, uh, to the extent that we have a, a disagreement, um, and actually this would be interesting I, for me certainly uh, to explore uh, this, it's over um, the fate of physicalism itself and whether, uh, whether there is um, a very bad explanatory gap problem that physicalism falls into. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, I, I, I think, uh, Philip, you, I'll, you'll, you'll tell me, you'll tell us if this is misunderstanding your position, but that's sort of the main thing that you, you would find objectionable with physicalism. And I've tried to, I've tried to argue, oh no, you know, I mean, grounding can help the physicalist out of this problem. Um, so that's that's one sort of uh, issue is whether physicalism is sort of haunted by explanatory gap worries or whether there's there's ways out for the for the physicalist. But I'd also thought, and actually Phillips' two thousand nine paper did a great job of convincing me <laughs> that panpsychism wasn't going to help. Uh, uh, so I wasn't thinking. So I was thinking, you know, to the extent that sort of the big game here is to you know 
resolve these explanatory gap worries. I wasn't thinking of panpsychism as offering much uh, much solace, but you know. Well, you you were in you were in the audience, Jonathan, when I first gave that talk, actually, and you were very helpful, and yeah, that uh, that eventually became that two thousand nine paper. But yeah, sorry. Well, it's a great paper. I'm convinced by it. So I'd love to hear your 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 further thoughts. Where you you clearly come to think otherwise about um, the prospects for the panpsychist to resolve the explanatory. Yeah. Real, real quick, um, <clears throat> some of the audience may not be familiar with the language. So I just want to uh, address, address that really quick. Uh, uh, Jonathan, can you can you lay out priority monism and priority microphysicalism for us? Sure. Yeah. So uh, priority monism is the idea that um, among the so let's just focus our attention on the concrete material cosmos. Maybe there's other stuff out there but that's not under discussion right now. Uh, Within the concrete material cosmos, the priority monist view is that the the whole vast cosmos, that one single vast uh, 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 entity, is the most fundamental entity of the lot within the, uh, among the concrete material objects. So the priority monist will typically think that there are some smaller things like you and I, Uh, maybe ultimately particles or something like that, but that you and I and particles are derivative fragments of a more fundamental integrated whole. Whereas the priority, uh, did you say was microphysicalist? Was that the other one you were asking? Yeah, that's that's usually what I see is the opposite. And then there's maybe priority substance or or substance priority or something, but yeah. Great. Um, So um, where the priority monist starts with the biggest whole as most fundamental, and sees um, this process of carving things down uh, as a way of deriving uh, 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 more things from its fundamental whole. The priority, in this case, the microphysicalist will start with the smallest microphysical bits, maybe particles, and will and will say that those little bits are fundamental. And she'll kind of have a kind of inverted order from the monist. Uh, yeah. And she'll say, instead of carving things down, rather, we, we build things up. She can allow that there are bigger things like you and I and planets and uh, uh, galaxies and ultimately the whole cosmos. But she'll say that they derive from their smaller proper parts. Yeah. OK. And then, Philip, uh, this is like I think this tees you up really well to describe different views of uh, uh, panpsychism. Can you lay out like the priority monist panpsychism versus the microphysicalist panpsychism? So yeah, thanks. It's just what you'd expect, I, I guess. So panpsychists think consciousness or some kind of conscious entities exist at the fundamental level of reality. So if you think, if you have the sort of micro fundament, micro level fundamentality view, where maybe particles like electrons and quarks are the fundamental things, then it, combine that with panpsychism you're going to get the idea that electrons and quarks have very, very simple forms of consciousness, and then somehow, God knows how, somehow they combine together to make the consciousness of human or animal brains. Whereas if you prefer priority monism, so the cosmos as a whole is the fundamental thing, then as a panpsychist, you're going to think the cosmos as a whole is some 
kind of fundamental conscious mind. Um, but as we discussed briefly before we started broadcasting, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a pantheist. Doesn't necessarily mean you think the universe is God because it doesn't necessarily mean you think the universe is some kind of intelligent agent. You might think it's only after millions of years of natural selection that you get intelligence and agency. Mm -hmm. So for example, in my 2017 book, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, I defended a cosmopsychist view where the, the consciousness of the universe is just some sort of meaningless mess. It's very complicated because the universe is a very complicated place, but it's, it's just a kind of meaningless mess. I mean, you, you might, if you had some other motivations, I've explored if you're motivated by kind of um, fine-tuning to think there's some kind of cosmic goal-directedness, then maybe you might take cosmopsychism more in a sort of theistic direction. But if you're just trying to ex 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 explain vanilla consciousness, uh, then you're probably not, you're just going to end up with this meaningless mess kind of cosmic universe. But then the idea would be that human and animal minds and everything else that exists somehow derives its existence from this fundamental cosmic conscious mind. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm glad that you used the uh, American vanilla for us as well. Yeah, uh, that was another discussion we had before. Not not bog standard, which I discovered in another podcast is not really an American <laughs> friendly term right uh, so maybe that maybe that's the british british way of saying vanilla yeah yeah no uh, i was eric schwitzgable we had eric schwitzgable on my podcast oh, nice. and i was talking about bog standard physicalism and he was the what the, <laughs> I don't know. he was completely confused well so um something that i've i've continually wrestled with and sometimes i have a grasp on it and other times i lose it and right now i feel like i'm losing the grasp how how is like a cosmopsychist view how is that not a physicalist view because i in, in your consciousness and fundamental reality, you talk about um, the deep nature of matter. And, you know, it's it's from like Russell and Russellian uh, monism and how it's like you make this distinction. Physics tells us about, uh, you know, what physical particles, particles do, but not what they are. And I wonder if panpsychism is physicalism or, or how it's different. Or maybe it's um, is it property dualism? I, I'm, I'm never quite sure on this. I, I just don't know. Well, it's a difficult question how you define physicalism. I mean, I'm curious as to what Jonathan would say about that. But one, this is the issue, I, the argument I always have with Galen Strawson, who was my old PhD supervisor. Um, he uses the word physicalism or materialism in an incredibly broad way, mm. such that panpsychism or cosmopsychism do end up being forms of physicalism because he thinks the physical is just like this stuff point at it right you just sort of point at it so the, the stuff around us ends up being uh having a consciousness involving nature then that's just what the physical is so that's physicalism and uh and as you say most we bertrand russell inspired panpsychists think that the, that the consciousness stuff is sort of the deep nature of the physical um my, you know, my response to Gatlin, and this came up again in this, there was a volume of essays responding to my work called Is Consciousness Everywhere, published last year. Uh, and me and Galen had this perennial argument again. You know, my response is just, you know, this is a pragmatic issue, how we define words. And I just don't think it's a very helpful 
mm. way of defining it so that everyone turns out to be a physicalist. It's it's better to define it so that you can have the debates. So, I mean, I guess my first... The main definition I would use for physicalism is would be the idea that physical science, physics, uh, with its purely quantitative vocabulary, can in principle exhaustively describe the fundamental nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it gets a little bit tricky because certain physicalists, like David Lewis, think there are these quiddities that we can't... Uh, quite get at with the language of physics. Jonathan's actually responded to that, saying, um, sort of deflating this worry a little bit. But um, so there are other ways you can kind of modify the definition. But I think that's a good first pass definition that, uh, that, that, you know, physics is giving us, on its way to giving us the complete fundamental nature of reality. Um, I think that's what, that's in the public mind, what they think, you know, they would think physics is on its way to doing and um yeah so so on that view that panpsychism is certainly not a form of physicalism because we don't think physics is ever going to be able to give us the complete story of what's going on at the fundamental level because it's missing out all the consciousness stuff yeah so we need psychology too you're saying yeah that's maybe yeah me- yeah metaphor metaphysical commitments we need philosophy <laughs> there we uh, go. but Thanks. well i mean all of these are philosophical options but yeah you, you're right in the sense that the panpsychists think there are some mental properties if you like psychological properties mm-hmm. that um are not they're not non-physical in a sense as you say they're the deep nature of the physical uh so the the, the bertrand russell idea is physics just gives us this mathematical structure and for the panpsychists, that's that mathematical structure is filled out with consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's consciousness that breathes fire into the equations, to use Hawking's memorable phase, phase, yeah. phrase, not phase. Um, but, but yeah, they, they are metaphysical commitments that don't just drop out of physics, that you couldn't read out of a physics textbook, yeah. even if it was the final theory. Okay. That's really helpful. Uh, Jonathan... You got thoughts on that? I'd love to hear what what you have to say about physicalism and and whether or not you think panpsychism is physicalism or anything that's yeah. popped in your head so far. Okay. No, that was actually that was really interesting to hear. I didn't realize uh, what what Galen Strassen's view there was. Um, so I guess I think of I mean it's, it's very hard to define these notions. I think of there's kind of a two step process. First, let's try to define like what's physical or what's material. Um, and then let's see if we can def- use that to define sort of physicalism. So uh, trying to define uh, what's physical slash material is very difficult because we don't want to tie, and there's a sort of classic uh, uh, dilemma in the literature, like we don't want to tie it too much to the contents of current physics because yeah. almost certainly false, it'll almost certainly be superseded. But we don't want to be just sort of anything goes open to wherever future physics might go, because future physics might find itself invoking consciousness. You know, that, that is right. an open, uh, uh, sort of empirical possibility for physics. And Carl Hempel intensifies, yeah. <laughs> Hempel's dilemma. Thank you, yes, Hempel's yeah. dilemma, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so um, the probably the best... That, we could say now, I think, is we could point to some contemporary programs in physics that posit sort of mindless matter, like just part, mindless particles swirling in the void or something like that, mm-hmm. and say, this is a paradigm, paradigmatic example 
of, uh, of a, a physical slash material, merely material reality. Um, and, you know, then we just have to look, you know, let, let future physics come our way. Let's try to evaluate whether it's sustained that kind of image of like mindless matter or whether it's gotten something maybe a little trickier might happen. And then just yeah. who knows what we're going to say. So, so I think of the, I'd say like there's this notion of, the, of what's physical or what's material. And then physicalism, as I understand it, is the view that um, only that sort of stuff is fundamental. And if there's any distinct mental stuff, it's not fundamental. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's compatible with saying there is mental, there is fundamental mental stuff, but it's identified with the physical stuff, like on identity theory. Or it's mm -hmm. compatible saying there is no mental stuff on the limitivist view. That's a, a really wild uh, sort of view. But sort of, I think the most natural development of that is to say that yeah, there's mental stuff, but it's 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 derivative from the physical. It's not. Uh, it's not fundamental itself. So that's the kind of core idea for me of physicalism is the idea that they're, you know, the sort of best version of it by my, it says, like, yeah, of course there are mental states in the world, um, but they're not fundamental. They're derived from a, a, a more basic um, mindless uh, fundamental uh, physical layer. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I wonder if maybe we could we could flesh some more out between you, uh, some distinctions between you two. If we if we talked about what a pain is, so like what what would a pain be on ground functionalism versus a pain uh, on cosmopsychism, and like maybe how do I come to experience pain and the different theories? Who, who who's up you first? Go, yeah, <laughs> you go first, Jonathan. <laughs> I, I'm not going to have much. Um, um, more to say. Uh, I, I'm not sure the views are going to differ actually in what they'll say about. Okay. But uh, well, I'll be interested to hear what, what Philip will, will say. But uh, by my lights, what a pain is is it is a it's an experiential state. You you know what it is. It's that ouchy sort of thing. So I, I'm not thinking of it as anything um, to be defined in functional terms. That's something that mm. an analytic functionalist would want to do. So mm -hmm. by my lights, like. You know, if you want to know what the, what the term pain means, I'll tell you. Pain means pain. That's as far as yeah. a much more general view of the meanings of terms. They almost none of them have interesting analyses. So uh, pain's, you know, pain's just pain's just pain. Um, <laughs> and uh, then what what where I, I take the views to differ is in their explanations as to why there's pain in the world or why there are mental states in general, because uh, I mean, I guess a panpsychist needn't think that she can have some derivative mental states. She'll just, yeah. She needn't think pain's among the fundamental mental states, but just suppose to fix the, the, the idea for now that, that she'll say, yeah, and pain's on the fundamental side of the mental states. Yeah. Then the, the dispute, as I see it arising, isn't sort of what pain means or what it is, but rather why it's there. And for this kind of panpsychist who takes pain to be fundamental, she's going to say, that's as deep as it gets. There's no deeper story. It's, that's, that's how the world starts. Um, whereas for the physicalist, the physicalist was, they know there's something underneath, there's something deeper, these sort of mindless states of matter that somehow enable us to explain 
the presence of pain in the world. And this is why the sort of explanatory gap arguments that we were hinting at earlier are playing such a prominent role in the debate. Yeah. Well, so I wonder about like multiple realizability in uh, other animals. Like the, uh, from what I hear, there's like the classical story of here's what substance dualists believe and here's what functionalists believe and, and identity theorists. And a lot of people will say, hey, uh, if you say that pain is an ouch, then you're a, you're a dualist about pain. You, you, that's what the dualists say. And so it's so intriguing that you would say that uh, my dog feels pain, I assume, uh, or maybe I infer my dog feels pain. Yeah, but we have different we have different minds. I think we have different um, we obviously have different underlying structures. Right. Ho hopefully I don't have a dog brain. But uh, how, do, how do you cash out the the similarities that, that they're both we're both experiencing pain or do do I experience like human pain and the dog experiences dog pain? Well, that's where functionalism sort of enters the literature as an attempt. Uh, right. It's contested whether it succeeds, but it's an attempt to say what different uh, uh, species, whether they be dogs or, 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 or an octopus or maybe even like a, a sentient Martian science fictional creature who's wired completely differently than we are, uh, what they might have in common such that they can all you know, experience pain or be in the same mental state. And there the idea is they don't have the same physical substrate, but they, uh, they might realize the same sort of abstract causal profile. So, mm -hmm. so you and your dog and you know, all of us and the octopus as well might all, crudely speaking, be um, making transitions from uh, bodily damage, damage to the tissues, uh, to some kind of avoidance behavior. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we're all mediating those transitions um, and there's uh, a state for each of us, might be a different state for each of us, but a state for each of us that's mediating the transition, that mediating state is uh, the realizer of pain, even though we can each have different states realizing our pains. Okay, yeah, that's helpful. All right, uh, Philip, I'll turn it over to you here. Yeah, so as Jonathan says, I'm, I don't think we're going to disagree on, on the, the, the nature of the mental state itself. I mean, there are radical forms of um, physicalism, which I do have a disagreement on this issue with my friend and podcast co-host, Keith Frankish, who's an illusionist. Right. So he thinks, you know, the phenomenal what we tend to call phenomenal consciousness the the subjective quality of pain uh he thinks that's a kind of illusion and in terms of the pain he does believe in he would just give some kind of a functionalist definition of that in terms of behavior basically uh not just external behavior uh you know so avoidance behavior when the body is damaged but also behavioral connections between parts inside the organism and the brain but so he would just define pain in those behavioral terms but i don't think jonathan's that kind of illusionist physicalist who well he's just made that pretty clear yeah. uh that pain is pain it's the feeling of pain it's that you know <laughs> ow <laughs> um so yeah so the dis well maybe i could say start to bring out the disagreement maybe by saying why I'm not totally at this stage uh, willing to embrace Jonathan's view. I mean, so I think Jonathan's got a really interesting view. Actually, he's got a quite 
um, novel and um, he sort of created his own position to an extent, which I think lots of other people have run with. Um, and actually, just to give Jonathan one more compliment, uh, everything is so specialized these days. I find um, so often metaphysicians just don't do any kind of philosophy of mind and vice versa. You know, I think if you go back 30, 40 years, people like David Armstrong and David Lewis, these big figures, did the, meta did the metaphysics, but, you know, had views on these, the knowledge argument against materialism and on the, the, meta on the, the, the ontology of consciousness as well. But um, I think Jonathan's one of the few kind of metaphysicians who's uh, taken these, th these explanatory gap consciousness issues very seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, compliments over. Let's <laughs> where, where I think I disagree. I guess my, my with Jonathan's form of physicalism, it's it's not so much that I don't think it could be true. It sort of seems to me very different from what I've always understood physicalism to be. In fact, it seems much closer to um, David Chalmers style dualism to my mind than to physicalism. So maybe I could just try and spend a couple of minutes making that clear. So, you know, I've always thought of physicalism as the view that consciousness and everything else is nothing over and above physical goings on. In, in, in something like the way a party is, is nothing over and above people dancing and drinking and having a good time. And, um, um, you know, it's not like there's people dancing and drinking and they bring into existence this thing, the party that sort of floats above their heads. Uh, you know, all, all we mean when we say there is a party is there's people dancing and drinking and so on. Um, I mean, I've raised this with Jonathan for whether we need special, special grounding laws to bring into existence a party once you've got people dancing and drinking. And, um, well, maybe we could get onto that. But um, it doesn't seem to me we do because all it is for there to be a party is for there to be people dancing and drinking that the reality of the party wholly consists in the people dancing and drinking analogously my conception of physicalism even if they don't strictly speaking have an identity nonetheless the view should be that my pain wholly consists in certain certain kinds of uh, physical functioning in the brain it's it's nothing over and above the physical workings of the brain. Whereas on Jonathan's view, it, and maybe he can correct me, but the idea is, in some sense, the, so he uses the word grounding for the, the pain grounds, sorry, the brain state grounds the pain, but the pain is something, as I've understood his view, something genuinely new, something ontologically extra something over and above all the physical happenings indeed we need these special grounding laws mm. to bridge the gap uh because it really is this ontologically novel thing and then and then it really does just sound like david chalmers view so david chalmers thinks you know pain and consciousness and physical goings on in the brain are different kinds of property and we need these special, he calls them psychophysical laws to bridge the gap between the uh, the brain goings on and the consciousness goings on. Um, 
so they seem to me very similar views. Okay, now there are differences on Jonathan's view. He wants to say it's metaphysically necessary. It's grounding rather than causation. I guess it's causation and charm. But then I, I, start, I start to lose my grip on what the difference between grounding and causation is. If, if, the, um, if what is produced is something ontologically extra to the producer, then why isn't it just causation? And even if you say it's metaphysically necessary, I guess I'm suspicious of those kind of non-transparent necessities. But, um, okay, well, I would just think that's a necessitarian version of David Chalmers' view. So anyway, that was a bit long-winded, but I guess that's, that's, that's my thought, that it's, it, re it doesn't seem like what I always understood physicalism to be. Yeah, Jonathan, uh, hammer back now. Now we're not we're not friends anymore. Now we can actually go for the jugular. All more. right. No, yeah, well, yeah. Actually, I think Philip and I don't disagree that much about pain. What we really disagree about is about parties. Mm. Um, so, uh -huh. uh, 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 as I'm understanding, Philip, he, uh, Philip, you're you're saying that um, for there to be a party, all it takes is for there to be people drinking and dancing and cavorting in, in the right ways. Um, and I'm thinking, no, actually, something more is required. I'll say what that is in a moment. And so I do think the party, in some sense, hovers above and is something genuinely new in addition to all the people cavorting. And here's why. Um, a party is a, is, an, is a unified individual event all the various cavortings and drinkings and dancing and whatever are lots of little smaller events just as we saw in the um in the monism and uh, uh, uh microphysicalism case we have a kind of a myriological hierarchy of bigger and smaller and we typically in that case posit a special connecting operation, myriological fusion, if you're going from the small up to the big, or fission, if you're going from the big down to the small. Uh, it's exactly the same scenario here with events. If you wanna get from lots of little events, you know, Philip dancing this way and me drinking that way and Parker chatting over there and all of us, you know, doing our little bits to contribute to the making. Sounds of like a party. good party. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's have it. So, um, yeah. so uh, I'm thinking the party is something uh, where you have to believe that smaller events compose larger ones in order to believe that there is a party. There is room for the, 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 the very depressing view that I'll call party eliminativism, <laughs> um, where the party eliminativist, let's say, uh, she'll grant that Philip's dancing and Jonathan's drinking and Parker's chatting, but she'll say, but uh, all there is is just a bunch of people, as it were, arranged party-wise. There's mm -hmm. no, bigger thing, a party that they compose, it's a further substantive claim that uh, by my lights has to be backed by a kind of this, something like a myriological fusion principle on events, a kind of generative principle that's making genuinely new big things out of, out of a bunch of small things to say that there's a party. So mm -hmm. I agree with Philip's characterization of my view as being 
a surprising form of physicalism that doesn't go in for a kind of very reductive, the pain is, you know, just is like the little physical stuff doing its thing, but embraces this more sort of inflated conception, uh, uh, non-reduced conception. Pain is just this, you know, uh, kind of experience. Um, but what I want to say is it, the, the mistake that was made was in thinking that the rest of reality outside the mental could be so uh, simply and easily reduced without using kind of grounding principles. So I think in, as a, it's, it's in a very general way, every physicalist uh, should allow that to the extent that there are parties at all, it's because there are these metaphysical principles, uh, in this case, mirrorological fusion that makes them, or there, there are persons at all. It's to the extent that there are metaphysical uh, principles, be it fusion or fission principles, that make them, whether it's from the whole cosmos or from the smallest parts. So I'm thinking that the physicalist needs to review her background to metaphysics first. Uh, and um, move past this picture that Philip was articulating, which I think is the standard picture in the literature. I so um, on which sort of all the rest of the stuff, the non-mental stuff, just sort of is nothing over and above and comes for free when you have the physical stuff and the mental something special because you need, you need extra principles. And needs to see that you, you always needed the extra principles in all the cases. And then follow-up claim, we can get the mental in just the same way. Good. So I'm, I'm glad we can trace the disagreement there. So it's so I guess it's a disagreement about the metaphysics of grounding rather than um, the, um, in particular, its application to the mind-body case. So, yeah, as I say, I mean, it's not like I've got any big particular objection to 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 your to your your view you know i think it, it could be true because it doesn't feel like the kinds of physicalism I, I i really worry about but yeah it does seem to me there's too much metaphysics going on in this party case it just seems to me i don't know uh it seems to me like all we mean when we say there is a party so I, I agree with what you said to the extent that that shows there isn't an identity, right? I don't think there's an identity here. It's not that the party is identical to Jonathan drinking and Parker chatting. and uh, Because, of course, Parker might leave the party and yeah. Susan Schneider might come in, and but it's still the same party. Mm. Um, but I just, I, I suppose, if I could put it in uh, truth-making terms, is something associated with a lot of people, including my colleague here at Durham, part of the time, John Heil. Uh, you know, I think sentences about parties are made true by um, sentences, by, by facts about people dancing and drinking. <coughs> so the, the, the talk of the party is made true by um, the people dancing and drinking. And, um, I mean, the, the, the disagreement, well, I don't know, again, to too much technicality. The disagreement I have with John Heil is, I mean, I think to make sense of that, we have to hold that existence talk 
when we talk of a party existing is maybe a bit sort of a looser sense of existence than we mean when we say like a particle exists or God exists or doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we use, because we've used language in this broader way, like uh, we say, oh, there's a party at Jonathan's tonight. You got to come just to mean. So we say there is, there is a party just to mean people are getting together. Uh, so then this sort of creates an, a new sort of lightweight sense of existence. Um, so the party exists. It literally exists. But all it is for it to exist is um, for people to be gathered in these ways. Well, yeah. So, 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 so that would be my view, that the, the truth-making view, that, that sentences about the party are just made true by the people dancing and drinking and so on. So is the, is the concern, Philip, that, that uh, on... On Jonathan's view, ontological pluralism like looms or something, and we'd have to like be committed to like a, a an actual party, the the ontology of parties as well. I just it just all seems to me so very unnecessary. All this, and you know, I think if you if we started coming on the metaphysics of parties to, for what it's worth, yeah person on the Clapham omnibus, you know, they you know, they said, "What what are you talking about? What, all, all I mean when I say there's a party mm. is." There are people dancing and drinking. I, th I think we just use language in such a way that those sentences uh, are made true by people dancing and drinking. So, so the way we use language ensures that. And so th this heavy-duty metaphysics seems to me just to kind of unnecessary. I'd be happy. I'm happy to postulate, you know, when it's really necessary. But I just think this simpler story about... Uh, how we're using party language uh, avoids the need for all this heavy-duty metaphysics. Mm. Well, uh, so one thing that, um, Jonathan, if you want to jump back on that, uh, that's cool. One one thing I wanted to broach in, in bringing up uh, what is a pain and trying to flesh out t uh, differences, maybe I should have asked what is a mind, um, because the way I see it, uh, Philip, as a panpsychist, is going to have to either use vision to individuate a mind from the, the cosmos, if you're a cosmopsychist, or fusion to combine the fundamental BBs into a mind that experiences pain. And so I think there's like the individuation or combination problems. And then for uh, Dr. Schaffer or Jonathan, it, it looks like a pain. Well, I'm, I'm still kind of confused about the, uh, the, the metaphysical picture of functionalism, but it, it seems like a mind is um, not like a, not like a substance, like a substance dualist would say, but like a, a combination or a, a pattern of, of, uh, events in a brain or emergent from a brain. I know emergence, a wild word to use, but so that, that's kind of what I was picturing of you two and how you might say what a mind is and the thing that experiences a, a pain. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm totally off there. Jonathan, you got any, anything? Um, I would say that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to, normally in these debates, I focus on the property side of things, the mental mm. properties and the physical properties. But I yeah. also actually, I'm happy to recognize minds as sort of on the object side of things. Mm. Um, um, and I just in the same way that I would recognize um, molecules and chemicals and organisms as 
individual entities going up the kind of levels hierarchy of nature from from sort of chemistry to biology. Um, so I'm happy to recognize minds as sort of a, 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 a another sort of entity hmm. that are realized by but not identical with anything that we found at the lower levels. Hmm. Um, so I'm happy to... Uh, to say that there are minds, I'm happy to um, say how, why we find them in the or, or try to, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. happy to put forward a theory that attempts to say why we find them in the world. Um, but then, if you're asking me what are they, I'm going to say the same kind of um, trivial, disquotational kind of answer. Uh, okay. You know, uh, mind means mind. Uh, yeah. Uh, and just like in the pain case, fortunately, we we do know what both of those uh, we do know what those mean. So mm-hmm. when I tell you that a given word means pain, that helps you understand the word because you know what pain means, and likewise for mind. Um, so, so uh, I, I appreciate that. I'll ever give for almost all meaning. Yeah, that's good. Well, and you've made the point in the previous episode. Uh, that you know, conceptual analysis is kind of bunk. It's kind of failed. We don't really. We have tons and tons of counterexamples. So that whole th- uh, notion of philosophy has produced lots of counterexamples, which is fun. Uh, and and humor says a similar thing. And I was recognizing a similarity between you two. And then you told me earlier that you guys are actually uh, students together at Rutgers. So that makes some sense. And um, this is really a kind of a Jerry Fodor view. So let's get okay. on. Let's give a shout out to the great Jerry Fodor, who. Yeah. Uh, I think recognized early on that the project of conceptual analyses of notions like knowledge and causation, which I, I, I banged my head against that for the first, you know, sort of few years of my career, didn't didn't solve the problem. Um, yeah. and, and you know, uh, and not just me, like people like David Lewis, like some of the greatest philosophers, have you know tried to give conceptual analyses of these notions, and it never worked. So there's a a really strong inductive argument to be given that conceptual analyses always fail. Fodor tied it into a certain view about concepts, where he had this idea that concepts are themselves these just kind of uh, atomic entities, and they have kind of uh, reference conditions to the to the out to the outer world, but they don't have like a, a kind of a kind of internal structure to support conceptual analyses. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, so. Um... I wonder then if we're going to go with the, the dis- disquotational view where a mind is a mind, what do we do about things like like machine consciousness and the AI kind of stuff? And, and Philip just got back from a conference, so I'm, I'm looking to hear from him as well uh, on AI. But what, what would we do? I can recognize him. Uh, I can recognize you have a mind, I think, maybe inference to the best explanation plus a little analogy or something. But when it comes to new things like machines, uh, machine consciousness, how would we go about recognizing that you know, a mind is a mind in a uh, in a machine, and maybe now we slipped into epistemology, I guess. But just just any any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I want to hear uh, Phil's thought about this more than I have, but I'll give a quick sort of functionalist answer, which yeah. is that what we might find from looking at the places where we do have a good grasp of where there are minds and where there at least seem not to be minds. Of course, the panpsychist will will contest that, but like just taking that uh, taking that as a uh, uh, given for the moment, uh, okay. we might be able to come up with some pretty decent local generalizations across these cases. Uh, for instance, we might it might be that uh, it requires the right kind of functional organization 
in the local cases uh, mm. that we're starting with uh, to make a mont. Uh, that's that's a kind of functionalist view that I like. And then mm. what you do is you go to the when you get to the the hard cases like the machines, the you would just to the best to the extent that we can try to export the best generalizations we can find from the cases that we have a better grip on. And if it's if it's a functional principle that we're exporting, then it's just going to be a case of a question of whether the machines are ultimately implementing the right functions, and uh, they can do that uh, at least in principle. So that's, that's yeah, fine. yeah, Philip, please. Yeah, well, I guess uh, I mean, this kind of links back to Jonathan wondering why I'm not so concerned about the explanatory gap worries for panpsychism and there's a couple of different reasons for that but one reason is i'm i guess i'm less and less um i'm more and more inclined to some kind of strong emergentist view of biological consciousness um so according to which there are kind of extra principles um, bridging the gap between consciousness at the level of particles and consciousness at the level of the human brain or the animal brain. Um, so biological consciousness is some ontological novelty. Um, and one reason I'm inclined to think that that I've been that I push a little bit in my new book, why the purpose of the universe coming out in November? Nice. Uh, you can pre actually coming out in February in the US. All right. I know there's like a huge gap between the UK publication and the US publication. But anyway, um, if it's Cambridge, they're yeah. gonna ship them over. I think I've I've heard that about Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, well, it's Oxford University oh, Press, but I that's what, what they said. Yeah, they said they've got to have uh, four months shipping them over. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So one reason for that is thinking about. Uh, the evolution of consciousness. Th this is going to come back to AI. <laughs> <laughs> right, sounds good. Um, like, I think it's a very serious question. Why, why aren't we zombies? Why didn't we evolve as zombies? Um, and my answer to that is that you know, natural selection just cares about behavior, right? It doesn't care about the quality of your inner life. Mm -hmm. It just cares about behavior that's going to be good for survival. So... I mean, there's a lot of different pieces in this argument, but basically the claim is that to make sense of consciousness having evolved, it must make a behavioral difference. It must be that things, systems with consciousness uh, behave differently and survive better than systems without consciousness. Hmm. Um, and therefore, uh, the emergence of consciousness must have made this uh, behavioral difference must bring into being new causal principles over and above the basic equations of physics. Okay, there's a Jonathan's a smart smart philosopher and can see there's a few missing missing steps in this argument, but that that's that's what what, what I ultimately think that um, that there must be some strong emergentist picture where if just going off the basic equations of physics you're not going to be able to predict what a conscious system does because consciousness at the biological level brings into being new causal principles. Okay, 
because only in that way the argument goes, can we make sense of why it was a survival advantage? Otherwise, it would be overwhelmingly likely that natural selection would have made us a zombies. Okay, so how does this connect to AI? Hmm. Well, uh, I think, you know, so with things, these incredibly impressive large language models like uh, ChatGPT, we've, you know, they're so complicated, we've to an extent lost track of how they're doing what they're doing. I was chatting over dinner to uh, someone working at OpenAI who was p part of the team working on uh, ChatGPT4. Uh, so so yeah, we've lost touch with it, but, and this was confirmed in this conversation, I think we still know that in principle, if not in practice, everything they're, they're doing is reducible to the basic equations of physics. So if I'm right that uh, cons biological consciousness is strongly emergent or macro level consciousness is strongly emergent, we can infer that uh, large language models are not conscious. And, you know, and furthermore, that just, just more and more complex Im information processing isn't, isn't going to get you consciousness. Yeah. Well, okay, so here's, here's a question I'm having. If you go in for strong emergentism, then why do you need uh, panpsychism in the first place? Good, good question. Good yeah. question. And this might be an, an, an interesting point of connection with Jonathan, actually, because so, so my claim is, well, I think we're... we're where panpsychism earns its value is in this Bertrand Russell-inspired way of reducing physical reality to underlying facts about consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, so because physics is just kind of mathematical structure, then as far as physics is concerned, fundamental reality could turn out to be anything as long as it has the right mathematical structure you're going to be able to get physics out of that so so that so that so the panpsychist manages to reduce physical reality to underlying facts about consciousness okay then you still have to have i claim this strongly emergent biological consciousness nonetheless what i say what i want to say is we we still end up with a very if we go panpsychist rather than David Chalmers-style dualist. And as I've said, I, I find Jonathan Schaffer's view, uh, Jonathan's view, seems to me kind of similar to that in substance. If you go for that rather than panpsychism, then I would say you end up with two kinds of property, right? The quantitative, objective properties we get from physical science and these qualitative, con subjective consciousness properties. Um, Whereas if you go panpsychist, there's just one kind of uh, yeah. property so at all levels. Move. So yeah. it's a more possible. Now, why I think just finally, sorry, I'm talking a long time, but just finally, as just as we were talking, it occurred to me why this might be interesting to connect to Jonathan is I think, so Jonathan is well known for defending, uh, I think what's become known as Schaffer's razor, as opposed to Occam, <laughs> Schaffer's laser, sorry, Schaffer's laser, laser. as opposed yep. to Occam's razor, that we that we should base our ontological commitments just at what we find at the fundamental level. Now, in, in some sense, I'm sympathetic to that, except only when we're thinking of, uh, when we're thinking of grounding the way Jonathan characterizes it, where there's these fundamental prince bridging principles, and to my mind, it's more like Chalmers dualism. Well, then I would want to count the, the grounded properties as well. Because they're these genuinely new things, so I think they they would count for or against parsimony as well. Mm. It's only, to my mind, that things only don't count 
uh, parsimony wise when they're sort of nothing over and above because part so parties are nothing over and above people and dancing and drinking so we don't want to count the parties as well as the people dancing and drinking but where you've got these bridging laws whether you call them grounding laws or not that bring into being these new consciousness properties then i want to count those in terms of the parsimony of your view yeah. so if you go panpsychist it's important then to go panpsychist because you've only got in terms of the po- co- properties that count for or against parsimony you've just got one kind of property well don't you don't you still have fission and fusion depending on the view you if you're a cosmopsychist you'd have like a fission law right where it's like when when parker comes into being like my consciousness is different than yours which is different than the cosmopsychist universe wouldn't there still be like uh, similar types of laws that you want to count for jonathan yeah so yeah so my so i think my view would be quite similar that you'd okay. have these new laws that bring into being these new properties um i mean i might not put it in terms of laws i prefer the idea that the particles have basic combinatorial capacities, but I don't think that really matters for this discussion. Okay. Yeah, so it's a similar view. It's just, yeah, the, uh, bridging principles bringing into being these new forms of consciousness. Um, but, uh, but still, at the base and at the high level, you've just got one kind of property, okay. and I think that's a saving. You know, so yeah, the most parsimo- the ideal would be a really reductionist form of panpsychism, such as Luke, the great Luke Roloffs, one of my favorite philosophers. Uh, he's just got a job at Texas. Uh, tries to have a very reductionist panpsych. That would be great, but I, I'm more and more skeptical we can do that. So, okay, you have to have a bit of strong emergence, but still, it's still a, a real parsimony saving, in my view, if at all levels of reality, we've just got one kind of property. Mm. Yeah, Jonathan, a lot there to, to tackle. What do you What do you think? Sorry, I talk too long. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, uh, maybe it's I'm sort of tempted to talk about parsimony because I actually think sort of at the root of a lot of these issues are some sort of underlying methodological disagreements about yeah. how to think about parsimony. It's sort of hard to get fascinated by parsimony when you're just starting out, but then when you see the work that it's sort of systematically doing in different debates, it comes to be sort of, I think, a fascinating core topic. So um, yeah, so I've defended what what uh, Philip uh, Dicey called uh, Schaffer's laser, which mm-hmm. is the idea that we uh, measure the parsimony of a theory not by the number of entities that it posits, but by the number of fundamental entities that it posits. Um, And um, one of the motivations for doing this was sort of thinking of things on analogy with how we measure the conceptual economy of a theory. So we don't want theories to just use too many primitive notions. Um, That's that's sort of a bad making feature of a theory if it just willy-nilly multiplies primitive notions. We love theories that get by with a slender handful of primitive notions, but it's no knock on a theory if it can use its slender handful of uh, uh, primitive notions to define some new concepts. In fact, it's a virtue, it's a strength of a theory that you can use its primitives to define up a whole host of other interesting concepts. Um, But when, and so the sort of part of the motivation for upgrading to the laser uh, from the uh, from from the razor was this idea that well if you think about how things work on the conceptual side we don't count all the concepts 
that an uh, approach uh, posits against the theory. We only count the primitive concepts against the uh, the theory. We actually credit the theory with um, mm. uh, 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 definable concepts. That's I guess what I call that sort of the bang for the buck methodology. We want the sort of the most the strongest from the least. Um, and so, likewise, I think when on the on the entity side. We want the same kind of approach. We want to get the most bang for the buck. We want to be able to start from the smallest handful of fundamental entities. And if from those fundamental entities, we can derive more further entities, that's not a knock against the theory any more than defining a new concept was a knock against theory. That's a credit to the theory. And um, just like with these defined concepts, they are genuinely new concepts, even if they have a definition. So, for instance, um, to take a, the, we've been talking about sort of muriological fusion. So I, my brain's already loaded to talk about muriology. <laughs> I'll stick there for the moment. So um, one of the beautiful things about muriology is we can actually start with, we, we can do classical muriology with a single primitive notion. We have some choices. We can take parthood or proper parthood or overlap. These are all interdefinable notions. Part mm. of the beauty of the theory is you can start with a single primitive notion and define this wide range of other notions in its terms. So let's let's say that we decide to start with parthood. Doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, now, hey, wow, we find out we can define overlap. This is a victory for the theory not a cost of the theory that we've got a new concept, a victory that we've defined it. Um, it's a genuinely new concept. It's not, uh, it's a new concept. So um, that's what I think the, the grounded uh, uh, outputs are like the defined concepts. They're, they're genuinely new. Um, it's an achievement to get to them. They're not a cost of the theory, but an achievement of the theory. So what do you make of... Um... <clears throat> Like where where does the mind making law come from? I guess because uh, we're we're using the concepts right and derivative concepts and stuff. So so yeah, where and and if it's not a cost, in order for it to not be a cost, like uh, Philip's trying to push, it would have to be it would have to come out or, or fall out naturally of of whatever is most fundamental or or something more fundamental, right? Is does that make sense or am I am I not getting what's going on here? Yeah, good. So, um, no, you are, but let's make a distinction. But when I, we were talking about the minds or the mental properties, that's yeah. one sort of um, uh, well, entity who, sure. whose fundamentality is to be considered. Um, but then there are the, those laws, those bridging principles. That's another sort of entity. And we might ask, oh, what are the ontological costs involved with positing these kind of, whether you want to call them laws of metaphysics or grounding principles, I don't mind the sort of laws of metaphysics is a bit of a bit of a joke on the, against the the, uh, the positive grounding principles will do uh, perfectly well. Um, uh, there's a question of what ontological costs sit on positive and grounding principles, and there I, I think this is a further uh, substantive matter. Uh, some people have wanted to say, oh, maybe you could sort of reduce or derive all of the grounding principles. I, I think that can't be done because I think to derive anything, you need to have some principles in place to do the derivation. So mm. it's my view that there have to be, if you like any of this sort of ground theoretic framework, which you don't have to, but if you like any of that ground theoretic framework, I think you're committed to there being some fundamental laws of metaphysics, some fundamental okay. grounding principles. But, sorry, just to finish uh, up on mind-making, 
That leaves open whether mind making is one of the fundamental ones or not. If it is, then it is uh, some cost of the theory uh, of, of my kind of ground functionalist approach that it adds a new fundamental root metaphysical principle. Mm -hmm. So you know, it, it may be that the theory has to go that way. I, I hope is, though this is not, you know, this is, this is just a hope. My hope is that this can be unified under a broader, the mind-making principle can be subsumed under a broader class of functional generative principles that we needed anyway. Yeah. Um, that's a big claim. But if that could be substantiated, then I would be able to sort of make the sort of the big happy for the ground functionalist happy conclusion that like we got the mind for free in the sense that we we did need a mind making principle but it was derivative from principles we needed anyway yeah uh, um so it might it might cost a new fundamental uh grounding principle but it, it might not even cost that yeah so um we we talked we got here like towards the end of our of our first conversation and i thought this is fun because uh this gets at this might be uh an, a way to further the theist non-theist theist naturalist physicalist debate because if if there are more fundamental mind making principles or or not just more but fundamental mind making principles that might look like mind was was one of the goals in in the beginning. It, it looks like mind's more special, but if it just falls out of deeper laws and it's you get it for free, it's like no, it just minds just kind of they they happened to be the case, and that's great for us who are phenomenally conscious minds. That's cool, but it you know it, it fits more neatly with a physicalist story, maybe. Yeah, uh, Philip, thoughts on this? That's really really helpful, and I'm not unsympathetic to a lot of what Jonathan said, but so suppose, I mean, suppose we have these, the, the physicalist, so let's just drop the worries about whether Jonathan's view is proper physicalism or not. Let's sure. just talk about Jonathan's physicalism and, and my panpsychism, which is going to have these generative principles as well. Uh, I would think of them in a different way, mm -hmm. but uh, I guess I would think of them as more causation rather than grounding. But Okay, let's not worry about that. Um, in fact, let's just talk in Jonathan's terms about... So you've got the grounding panpsychist and the grounding physicalist. They've both got their generative principles, mm -hmm. but on the um, for the grounding physicalist, it still seems to me you've got two very different kinds of property at the, at the at the base level you've got these purely quantitative uh properties whereas popping up in the mind you've got these uh qualitative subjective properties whereas for the grounding panpsychist they've got the same generative principles let's say so they're equally matched in that regard but still there's just one kind of property in the mind and at the base of reality isn't that a more simple and unified view, and a, 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 a and so a more attractive view, Jonathan. What are you? Oh, that's interesting, Philip. I let me just make sure that I've I've got the picture right. I I was think so. You're on your kind of panpsychist uh, view. Only the sort of subjective uh, uh, phenomenal properties are fundamental, and the other sorts of properties, the these sort of quantitative properties 
um, those are those are derivatives, right? Is that right? Yeah. So they're just. Um, but oh, okay. they're just kind of a matter of how. So physics is just a kind of matter of how consciousness stuff behaves. Right. Yeah. But th there so. are these. You're not denying that there are the quantitative properties posited by physics. You're not denying physics. You're just saying it's it's grounded in the experiential. If I'm understanding that right, it seems to me that we both accept that there are the quantitative and the uh, phenomenal properties. Your yeah. view is that the phenomenal properties are fundamental and the sort of desubjectivized quantitative properties are derived from them. And the physicalist inverts that order, says the quantitative physical properties. I think they're, I think they have quiddities too, but let me put that. Oh, nice. All right. Let me put that to the side. That the, the, yeah. the, the physical properties come first and the subjective properties come out later. So to the extent that there is a difference in kind between the quantitative and the sort of subjective experiential properties, I think we both have both of them and we just disagree about which one comes first. I get, um, I mean, I suppose I want to say they're nothing over and above, but I don't know how, much, how comfortable you are. The, the, the quantitative properties of physics, uh, I, I certainly don't want to say we need some bridging laws to get them out. Um, I mean, really, all, all, all there is in the ontology is consciousness stuff behaving in a certain way. That that is that is all there is. That's all and, there is enough. I mean, maybe I'll say maybe I'll say it's an identity, right? It's an identity. What? Uh, and and yeah, I mean, I used. But it's yeah, multiply realizable. Mm. Hmm. It's multiply. It's multiply realizable. So I thought you wouldn't. Want you mean to the an identity? Yeah. The quantitative properties are going to be multiply mm. realizable from subjective bases. So by your lights, there oughtn't to be an identity. Is that? Let me make sure that I'm following. I'm, I'm thinking like there are still third-person physical facts that that all three of us could look at a cup and like recognize that there's a cup there, and that looks like that's more the quantitative being explained by physics. Uh, because I am individuated from the cosmos, so I have my own consciousness that's separate from yours, and so you, I have phenomenal facts about me, but we can still recognize third-person, you know, objects and 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 facts. Is Jonathan, is that is that totally different than what you just said? Um, where the third person objects and facts, Parker, are sort of we're talking when I when I was saying that there's sort of quantitative yes. properties or things that aren't sort yeah. of aren't subjective. Yeah, that's then I think we're 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 saying okay. the same thing. Um, yeah, and then and then ultimately they're reducible to physics, but then the panpsychist claim would be the facts of physics are nothing over and above underlying facts about consciousness. So I suppose that's why I want to say the the on the panpsychist view, the quantitative facts of physics don't count <laughs> in terms of parsimony because yeah. they're nothing over and above the underlying consciousness facts. Um, whereas, um, I guess I want to say on the on the grounding physicalist view. Um, they both should count because, because um, the, 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 what's bridging the gap between them is these grounding principles. So yeah, we are. I guess we're back to our fundamental 
metaphysical assumptions here. Yeah. So I guess I guess I would say you know where where you're bringing into being something via these grounding principles, well then the thing produced is is gonna count over and above the producer. Uh, and so so insofar as I'm thinking of Jonathan's grounding physicalism, I'm gonna want to count the um, the consciousness that is produced as well as uh, what produces it, whereas I, I don't want to count the um, on the pan on my panpsychist view, because the physical properties are nothing over and above underlying facts about consciousness. I don't want to count them. I don't think. Well, I don't think they ought to be counted. So that's why I think it ends up being a, a simpler view. But it's interesting we've we've come back to uh, th those those. I, I guess you know. I guess this nothing over and aboveness plays a a big role in my metaphysical thinking. Whereas I don't. I don't think you do. You have any place for that apart from identity, Jonathan? I, I don't. I mean, I. You don't. Understand. I don't. I, I don't love the term. I mean, I, I. I'd be interested to hear more to understand how you're thinking about it. I've come to well, think that uh, there's there's identity, which is we both agree isn't at issue here, and then there's grounding, and then like. I don't know what nothing over and above means beyond one of those two options, but you know, I'm, I'm open to learning more and maybe there's, maybe there's some room to pull apart different grounding scenarios where some of them have some nothing over and above action and some of them um, lack anything over and above the grounds. Uh, I, oh, I yeah. mean, yeah. I mean, maybe I could just say a little bit more again, uh, uh, I'm th I guess I'm thinking of it in in terms of truth making. So you know, suppose we start off with a a world where there are just there are no tables, but there are particles arranged table wise. But we naturally uh, start using table language. You know, we say, "Oh, look, there's a table over there. Go and you know, go and have your dinner." Uh, whenever we're around particles arranged table-wise. And as we start using that language and it becomes part of um, acceptable official language, maybe it was just slang at first, but once it becomes official language, then I would say it is literally true. It is in the fullest, stricter sense true that there is a table when there are... Um, uh, particles arranged table-wise. You started by but it, but that's but mm. you started by saying yeah. that there are no tables. Did it change? Did tables pop into the world, or are you saying mm -hmm. that there are tables? Is true even though there aren't tables. I think there had to have been tables from the start through maybe a myriological fusion operation on the parts, so that our talk of tables could have something to refer to in order to be true. And if we're in a nihilist scenario where there are no tables, but just particles arranged table-wise, then talk of an individual table, there's no, there's no individual corresponding to it for that talk to be true. So this is where, I mean, and this is, as a, going back, connected to the dis dispute I have a lot on ongoing with John Heil, I think to make sense of this, I think you're pressing a very good worry, Jonathan, to make sense, it sounded like I was contradicting myself that I started off saying, let's start with the idea that there are no tables, and then I end up saying there are tables. To make sense of this, I think we have to have 
a distinction between us, a, a kind of heavyweight and a lightweight notion of existence. So the heavyweight notion of existence is what we employ when, when we say God exists or doesn't exist or numbers exist or don't exist um, or, you know, particles exist or don't exist. Uh, but then I think, so there's this strict metaphysical notion of existence, but I think inevitably we use language and existence talk in a much more loose way. So even if we accepted that in this strict metaphysical sense there are there are only particles, we'd still naturally start saying, oh, there's a table over there, go and, go and get it, you know. Um, and so, and then once that, but then I, I think that sort of, creates another sense of existence because if we're true if it if it now becomes literally true in the language that um sentences about there is a table is true when and when, when and only when there are, partic there are particles arranged table wise then that that expands the english meaning of existence and and it becomes literally true but it's but it's it exists in this more lightweight sense that just comes from this more flexible use of language. Does, would that make, <clears throat> so So, would that mean that tables, the concept or the abstract object was like created and it's like a like an impure abstracta or, or something? Like a, there was a historical moment in which the impure abstracta of tables like came into existence and exist in the same no, way so as a triangle or something? That is the, the kind of worry you might have so I don't want to say that, but I can see how what I've said might be interpreted in that way. I don't want to say, you know, our use of language creates the table. Mm. Um, I want to say that th once language has been expanded in this way, it is the sentence, there is a table here, is true. But it's But that sentence, <laughs> with the meaning it has... You know, we didn't make it true. It's 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 true because of its truth conditions are satisfied. Mm -hmm. um, what it what it requires of reality to be true is part of reality. So so I, I want to try and resist that. Yeah. Um, so we we got a little <laughs> we got into the ontology of of tables and chairs and the reference <laughs> of uh, you know of of the words. I wonder real real quick as we close out here. So um, we got priority monism. Um, there's also, there's a, a view that I hold more, which maybe I, I want to get you guys to just poke some holes in, maybe disabuse me on our way out. Uh, Ross Inman, uh, who's appropriated a lot of your work, uh, Dr. Shep or Jonathan, uh, he goes in for like a substance priority. And I'm wondering if you, in, instead of looking at the, the, the grand picture, the, the macro, uh, picture or the micro picture, the fundamental BBs, what if we just went in for like substances and said, well, substances are the. The, the things that exist, the fundamental BBs or things, uh, I don't know, caught up in a life or however Peter Van Wagen catches it up. But like the, the substance is the thing that is the mind. You know, it sounds like substance dualism probably because uh, it, it, it probably does lead to that. But I wonder why, I wonder if, if going in for substance priority, does that, is that less parsimonious than priority monism? Or do we just say like substance and you know, cosmos are are they on equal playing fields, or do you have to count up all the substances, and that's a account uh, a cost of the account? Oh, this is, gets into some very tricky parsimony issues about quantitative versus qualitative parsimony. Yeah. So uh, leave sort of Ross Inman's substances sure. off to one side just for the moment, yeah. and let's compare the sort of the 
cosmos uh, first priority monist to the micro priority micro physicalist uh, who, who who has particles first. Yeah. Um, now, the priority monist side has uh, just one fundamental entity and one type of fundamental entity, but the priority micro physicalist has. I mean, 10 to the 80th, who knows, <laughs> right. how many tokened fundamental things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a question of, uh, she might have one type of fundamental thing, particle, but she might have many if she thinks that there's you know different types of particle. Right. So it's, it's hard. Uh, when we get to specific um, uh, parsimony comparisons and we have to f- factor in... Um, um, uh, Type and types and tokens and quantitative and qualitative parsimony, it gets very tricky. And I, I, I think the Ross Inman view is kind of on the same side as the priority microphysicalist view. Okay. In terms of like, uh, maybe there's one type of fundamental entity, substances or something like that, but there's sort of lots of them. Uh, yeah. And maybe they also come in some different flavors. I'm not sure what. I don't recall that. I think you'd have to say that. Yeah, yeah. Different. Yeah, a dog is a different substance than a than a human. So that's a that's really helpful. Just for all the the substance dualists listening, that's that's the the burden. That's the task. So to take that one up, um, that's really helpful, Jonathan. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Philip, anything to say? Uh, as I. I don't want to take your guys' time too much. This has been so fantastic. But maybe maybe some some final thoughts for us as we close out here. I think this has been really useful. Yeah, I think we've really made progress on understanding our disagreement. And I think with, uh, it seems to me with Jonathan and I, it's not necessarily so much a disagreement on the philosophy of mind, but in the background metaphysics, uh, which worries me because this is uh, more more Jonathan's area than my <laughs> own. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I seem to have views on it. Uh, on... Um, the nature of the grounding relation, as I say, I tend to think of it more as this nothing over and above relation connected to truth making, at least when we're thinking of grounding in, in the physical world, it might be different in other arenas. Um, and the connection to parsimony that that brings in. So, um, yeah, so on, on my view, I'm very much looking for what what is fundamental reality and by that i mean what is the description of reality such that everything else is nothing over and above that fundamental story mm. that's what i'm looking for that's how i think of physicalism that's how i think of panpsychism whereas i think although jonathan is also puts his view in terms of grounding he has a you know a very different understanding of, of the grounding relation and and i think that's what leads to our differences but i think that's been really helpful in helping me on un- understand i'm sorry if we've got a little bit into the weeds here but it's it's helped me anyway understand the differences between our views yeah. i don't think we've persuaded each other but <laughs> never happens no but you guys have successfully torn me apart in the middle so i appreciate that one yeah jonathan last uh love closing uh, thoughts yeah no i i just want to sort of agree with everything that Philip says right here, which is that, I mean, I think we do have kind of the same sort of quest to understand the most fundamental aspects of reality, but maybe a slightly different understanding of the sort of tools involved in doing so, um, where, you know, we have a disagreement, maybe not about 
not really about the mind so much, but like we were saying earlier, we have disagreement about parties. Um, mm-hmm. And that sort of, that showed how we were disagreeing about what it takes to make a party. Um, and I think what this shows is that a lot of these disputes about the nature of the mind really can, in this case, uh, uh, do, I think, trace to some of the deepest underlying disputes about the right tools for metaphysical inquiry and the right methodology for metaphysical inquiry. And we're not going to settle those debates, but it's fascinating to see how they interconnect. Yeah. So that's that's part of the reason I really enjoy both of your guys' work. Uh, I've I'm trying to be a philosopher of mind, but as I'm learning more and more, I realize how much the metaphysics I uh, I have to learn. And I'm really glad that you guys are, are wrestling with that stuff and helping the next folks like me uh, get into it and think clearly about the mind and about reality. Uh, I just want to leave us with a really good quote from uh, one of Jonathan's papers here. He says, a properly choreographed system dances, dances out a mind. I thought that was great since we're talking about parties and such. Um, well, th- thanks again, guys. This has been like a really uh, a, a big honor for me, actually. I really admire and respect both you guys, and I appreciate your work, and especially your work in public philosophy, helping us get this stuff out there. Um, so this has been like a, a real joy. I was trying not to smile the whole time because it was so much fun to be with both of you guys. Uh, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. I'll drop links to uh, both their websites. You can find more of their work, download their papers, and, and get going on the metaphysics of mind type stuff. But that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.